0: the Family Life Cassetta of the Month Club presents Dr. John MacArthur speaking on the topic, Leave Me Alone, I Can't Cope. And now, Dr. MacArthur. This morning I'm going to just talk to you about some thoughts from the fourth chapter of Philippians. This is just kind of from me to you. and We've been into some heavy things in the past months before I was gone, and uh, so this will just be a consideration of some things that are very, very practical for us. Philippians chapter 4 is a, is a marvelous passage, and I don't want to get all involved in exegesis and uh, exposition in too much detail, and I'm not going to try to pull the whole argument of the book together, but I do want to discuss something about the whole idea of living adequately or really living life to the full as it's seen in the fourth chapter of Philippians. Uh, e. Stanley Jones said in his book called Mastery, The art of living is the least learned of all arts. Man has learned the art of existing, of getting by somehow with the demands of life, of escaping with half answers, but he knows very little about the art of living. End quote. He's right. Most people just really can't cope with life. They tolerate their spouse. Young people, in many cases, tolerate their parents. Uh, people tolerate their jobs, they endure their incomes, always thinking they're less than what they should be. There is really kind of, I guess, a self-generated misery. We have so much in America of affluence and success and materialism and entertainment and all that goes with it that if there's any way to be happy with all of that, we ought to be the happiest pile of people that ever existed. And yet, have you ever noticed that the premise on which almost every product is sold is the premise of a basic dissatisfaction. You are usually confronted with the dissatisfaction which can be turned over if you buy this product. A different toothpaste will help you to get a better job because it will eliminate a problem you've had due to the use of the wrong toothpaste. You need to drive a car that has prestige And immediately you face the dissatisfaction of the one you have. Advertising is predicated on a latent dissatisfaction which is appealed to, which in a sense kind of monitors life, that people just really don't have the fulfillment that life should bring. And our commercials help us to see that. And I think movies and books, etc., etc., the newspapers, etc., all mirror this terrible dissatisfaction. It's really a sense of loneliness. It's a sense of having all that you have and not having what you need most. And, of course, we know that that's a relationship with the Creator God for whom we were made and without whom we never have fulfillment. And when they tell us that real happiness is coming from certs or... Real happiness is produced by Johnson's Wax or gained from coffee made by Mrs. Olson or something like that. We know they're wrong, and yet somehow we buy the product. And if we can't get happy with the products and we can't cope with life, then we go to the drugstore. And uh, I checked out the drugstore, and in the section that uh, you could title the Coping with Life shelves, you have aspirin, orange-flavored for your children if they are also unable to cope. Anacin, Excedrin, Tegrin, Zerumin, measure Measurin, Ascriptin, Aspergum, BC, Bufferin, Emperin, Dissolve, Tylenol, Persistine, Miles, Nervine. I like this one, Quiet World. <laughs> A it says. Compose and then cope, which is the most honest of all a unique formula for the relief of tension headaches. And if that doesn't do it by the time it gets to be night, you can always take Sleepy's, X, or Night Hall. And if that doesn't work, you can go to your doctor and maybe he'll give you Valium, Miltown, Compazine, Librium, or Thorazine. And if that doesn't work, you can get drunk, or if that doesn't work, you can kill yourself. But it's tough to cope. What about living? Even Christians sometimes have a hard time with living. Hard time with a fulfilled life, I mean a happy life, a positive life, a meaningful life, a life where you get up in the morning and it's great, and you go to bed at night and it's been great. You say, oh, that seems like such a nice way to go. How does it happen? Well, that's why I took you to Philippians 4. I'd like to show you just in a little glimpse. You know, there are people who think they know what living is. I always remember there was an article in Playboy magazine, which was quoted in Eternity magazine, where I read it. (laughs) just so you understand. (laughs) And it was about Ernest Hemingway, and they ran a commentary on this article, and it said in the article that uh, Hemingway had done everything, traveled everywhere, fought revolutions, tumbled women, and was living proof that you can cheat so-called sin and get away with it, and he had lived life to the hilt. Ten years to the very month that that article appeared. Hemingway took a gun, put it to his head, and blew his brains out. That's living. You know what he learned? Nothing about living. Nothing. Sinclair Lewis was hailed as the toast of the literary world. Great writer, genius, brilliant. He had it all. Money, fame, prestige, women, the big life. He took a great, giant blast at Christianity when he wrote Elmer Gantry. Sinclair Lewis, the toast of the literary world, laughed it off and lived it up, and died a poor, slobbering alcoholic in a third-rate clinic somewhere outside of Rome. Everybody's got problems, and everybody wants to know how to live life. The only way to live life, really, is indicated for us in the Scripture, and Philippians 4 gives us a good glimpse of the things that are necessary. Now, we're going to look at the example of a man named Paul, a man that we're very familiar with and we love very much. In fact, I guess when I get to heaven next to Jesus, he's going to be the second person I look up. I've got to see what he looks like. But he was a man like we are, and so he's a good example because we need a man to look at. He's not in Jesus' class. He's in our class. He's not deity. He's humanity, see. We need not only a sinless God who provided the victory, but we need a sinful man who entered into the victory. Uh, We need not only one who never sinned, but we need somebody who sinned and kept getting up again. We need somebody to be our Savior and somebody to be our encourager. Paul encourages us because he failed and got up again. So we're going to look at Paul and see how to live life. Look at verse 12 of Philippians 4, we'll use that kind of as a kickoff point. I know both how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere in all things, all circumstances, literally, I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now what is he saying? He says, hey, you looking for a guy who's been through it? Here's one. You're looking for somebody who's been all the way from abounding to being abased. You want to talk to somebody who knows what it is to be flying at the top and laying at the bottom? You want to talk to somebody who knows how to win and how to lose? You want to talk to somebody who knows what it is to be well and somebody who knows what it is to be deathly sick? You want to talk to somebody who's had freedom and somebody who's been in chains? You want to talk to a guy who's had every circumstance that life can be? I'm, here I am. And I know, all through all of it, how to handle it. say, wow, Paul, that's quite a statement, quite a claim, that all through all of this, because you were strengthened in Christ, you could handle it all. He's saying, look, you tell me about circumstances, I've been through all of them, the worst and the best, and everything in the middle, and I know how to live this life. I know how to do it. Well, if you haven't arrived at Philippians before today, you should have because here's the answer. Here's how to live life. Look at verse 9. He says, Those things, to the Philippians, those things which ye have both learned and received, now watch, and heard and seen where? In me, what's the next word? Do. Stop right there. He says, hey, I've been there all the way. The gamut of human experience. The gamut of circumstance. And I'm just telling you this. You look at me and you see the way I did it and the way I taught it and you do it that way. You say, boy, Paul, that's really bold. You know what I mean? You've got to have a lot of confidence, right, to ask people to follow you. Every one of you should be able to say that right. Mom, you should be able to say to your, your daughter, honey, you see the way mommy lives? That's the way you're to live. Dad, you, you should be able to say to your son, hey son, you see the way dad lives? That's the way you're to live. Things you've heard, seen in me, you do them, and I'll promise you, the God of peace will be with you. Can you say that, parent? Boy, that's shaky, isn't it? Whew. Should be. I, as a pastor, should be able to stand up and say to you, listen, things that you've learned and received, heard, and seen in me, you do. you be like me, and God will bless you. And if we can't say that, it isn't because we can't really say it, potentially. It's because we can't say it really, because potentially every believer can be what God wants them to be. Do you believe that? have to believe that. And Paul literally says, look, you look at life and you want to know how to live it, I'll show you how to live it, you watch me and live it the same way. You say, all right, what are the principles? Well, let's go to verse 1 and we'll see them just kind of flowing out of the text here. What are the principles? Man, I mean, I want to live this way. By the way, let me add a footnote. Somebody by this time, if you're like me, is saying, well, why? What's the difference? Why should I really live life this way? Well, because somebody will say, well, because it's the way to get blessed. Well, and I agree. Somebody else will say, well, it's the way to be a good witness, and I agree. Somebody else will say, well, uh, it's the way to be sure when you die and go to heaven or when the Lord comes, you're going to get a reward. And those are all fine, but there's really one real reason why you should live this way, and that's because it glorifies God. You see, in Titus 2.10, Paul said to Titus that we are to adorn the doctrine of God. You see, God is on trial in the world, and the way we live is manifesting truth about him. And when Christians really live life, and when they are adequate, and, then it, and when they are fulfilled, and when they are positive, and when they are happy, and when their lives are meaningful, that says something about the God who is running their life. See, So it's for his sake. Let's start at the beginning. Number one. The first principle in living a fulfilled life is to have an adequate stand. An adequate stand. Verse one. Therefore, now therefore takes us backwards, doesn't it? The therefore points up something that's in the past. Now watch the verse. Therefore, my brother and dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and crown, So stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. What's really going on here is that the main sentence is, therefore stand fast in the Lord. Why? Well, because of who the Lord is. That's what the therefore hooks up with. And all throughout this marvelous verse, he talks about the salvation of Christ. He talks about the humiliation of Christ. He talks about the exaltation of Christ. He talks about... The the power of Christ. He talks about the excellency of Christ. He talks about the resurrection of Christ. He talks about the fact that Christ is going to change us to be like him. And he says, therefore, because of who he is, stand fast in him. See? You don't need to shake as a Christian. You don't need to get all rattled up. Because you can stand fast in the Lord. Now, let me just point out to begin with that Christians are in Christ. Isn't that a marvelous truth? We are in Christ. Our life is hid with Christ and God. There is some kind of a mysterious way in which we are bound up with God. We share a common eternal life. We are in God. We are in Christ. We are in the Holy Spirit, it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. All three of those things. We are indivisibly and indissolubly locked into the Trinity. In Paul's letters, 132 times he refers to the believer being in Christ. Backing up in Philippians 3, verse 8. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss, for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. This is where it all begins, to know Him, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but refuse, that I may win Christ, and be found where? In him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, legalism, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Being in Christ is coming into union with him by faith. And this is repeated in so many places. In Second Corinthians five seventeen, the Apostle Paul says, If any man be, where? In Christ, he's what? a new creation. This is where life begins. And outside of Christ there is no life. All is death and dying, you see. There's no meaning, there's no purpose, there's no rhyme. For Christ alone can introduce man to the God of the universe for whom man was created. So life begins by being in Christ. Now no other system of religion teaches thusly. You might speak of following the teachings of Buddha, and following the precepts of Mohammed. But you never hear of somebody saying, I'm in Buddha, or I'm in Mohammed. That's because those are religions. Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. And it's exactly what it is, it is being in Christ. Is it enough to follow the ethical teachings of Jesus? No. Is it enough to follow the moral precepts of the Bible? No. If a man is going to enter into heaven and have his sins forgiven and know the righteousness of God, if a man is ever going to enter into the presence of God and abide there forever, he's going to have to be in Christ. You say, how do you get in Christ? Paul said it right then. I just read it to you. By faith. By accepting the fact that Christ died for you, inviting him to become your Savior, at that moment you become one with him. He that is joined to the Lord is one spirit. First Corinthians six seventeen. We Christians live with Christ, who lives in us and we in him. Our life is hid where? With Christ, in God. We are all wrapped up with the person of Jesus Christ. The life I live is not my own, it's his within me. The righteousness that I have before God is not my own, it's his that's granted to me. The love that I share to the believers about me is not mine, it's the love of Christ shed abroad in my heart. The strength I have to do God's will is not my strength. It's the strength given me through Christ who is in me, and by it I can do all things through Christ who what? Strengthens me. The power that is mine is not mine. It's Christ that's in me. But because he's in me, I'm able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that I can ask or think according to that power that works in me. Everything in my existence is Christ in me. Therein lies our security, see. Therein lies our life, our righteousness, everything is ours because we are one with Christ. And as Christ is, so are we positionally before God. And so what he's saying is look, you are in the Lord, every Christian is. Now stand fast in that. You got problems, but stand on the fact of your union with Christ. You see? That's what you're to stand on. You're to stand firm on the fact that you're one with him. And anything happens to you, you just identify that you're one with him. So what's happening to you is happening to to him. And he has the resource to handle it. Isn't that great? I'll say it another way. Nothing ever happens to a Christian that doesn't also happen to Christ. You say, oh, you're wrong. Our sin doesn't. Want to hear something? In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul said, when you join yourself to a harlot, you literally join Christ to a harlot. That's right. That's how how total the identification is. You even drag him, he doesn't sin, but you drag his presence into the iniquity. That's how united you are with Christ. We're one with Christ. But well, you know, as sad and tragic as it is for the bad things to drag Christ in, it is infinitely greater for the difficulties to know he's there, right? Stand fast in the Lord. Boy, if you don't have God, you just don't have anything to lean on. Hemingway did a parody on the Lord's Prayer one time, mocking God, and he took the Spanish word nada, which means nothing, and he said, Ar nada, who art in nada, nada be thy name. I guess while he was strong and while he was creative and while he was virile, it all seemed great, but when we know what we know now, it doesn't seem so great. Beloved, you have, a, you have an adequate place to stand in the Lord, and no matter what problems come, and the Corinthians were having fights and discord and disharmony and division and all the temptations that could come to anybody, and the thing that he's saying to them is stand on the rock that is the character and the presence of God. Let me take it a step further into this text. He says, so stand fast in the Lord. What about a Christian? You say, well, I'm in Christ. Well, are you standing fast? There's a practical side, a positional side, and a practical side. Positionally, we are standing fast in the Lord, right? I mean, if you've come to Jesus Christ, you're secure in him. You do stand fast positionally. Your position before God is firm. But your practice may not be. There are all kinds of Christians who are not standing fast practically. They're flip-flopping and wavering all over everywhere. And in this area, we need to begin to practice our position. The Apostle Paul said to the Galatians in uh, chapter 5, I read you a very well-known verse, verse 1, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty with which Christ has made us free. He says to these Galatians, don't go back and try to live legalism. Don't go back and try to live a bunch of rules. Just stand firm in the new freedom to be obedient to the Spirit of God as you're led. Stand fast, he says, indicating that some Christians don't really Stand firm in the position that they have. 1 Corinthians 16, 13. Watch. Stand fast in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. So many Christians, they're strong positionally. Why, there's not a thing in the universe that could ever knock you off your positional pins. But they get flopped all over everywhere practically. And so Paul says, come on. Watch. Stand fast. Act like men. Be strong. Don't get knocked over by everything that comes along. It's ridiculous. The Apostle Paul takes it a step further, 2 Thessalonians 2.15, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you have been taught, whether by word or by our epistle. In other words, our stand is based on the word of God. Over in the Christian's armor at the end of Ephesians, you might remember when we studied that, you'll remember that verse 15 says, your feet should be shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Now, anybody knows that a soldier in battle needs the right kind of shoes so he can stand firm. The whole text here is that having done all, we are to what? Stand. Stand, stand. So whatever these shoes mean, they mean stand. I don't think the great emphasis is to go somewhere preaching the gospel. The emphasis here is to stand. So these have to be shoes that give you a solid footing, a solid grip on the soil. And what is that solid grip? What 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 are our feet prepared with that helps us stand firm? The gospel of peace. What do you mean by that? The fact that we are at peace with God. Satan always tries to come and shoot us down, doesn't he? He always tries to come and make us doubt the security of our salvation or doubt that we're adequate or doubt that God really cares about us or doubt that we can be victorious. And the Apostle Paul says, if you've got your feet shod right, you're going to stand there and say, hold it, Satan. Hold it right there. I am at peace with God. He's on my side. See, never forget when I was in junior high school, there was a little guy named Roger, and I don't know why, but I always kind of championed the cause of the underdog, and uh, I suppose I was waiting for somebody to do the same, in my case. But nevertheless, I always did. And Roger was a little roly-poly guy in the seventh grade, you know, kind of uh, rosy cheeks, you know, and uh, hadn't seen the days of the razor yet. Just kind of a, you know, it's kind of a refugee from the elementary school, and. uh, He had his little books, and he was a little roly-poly guy. And he was walking down the hall one day, and I was with him and another little friend, and and, uh, the the local school hood came up the hall. (laughs) And uh, so Roger went by, and he just tripped him. Roger fell down and hit his head, and his books went flying everywhere. And this guy was with five other hoods, and they laughed, you know, uh ha-ha. So the next day, the same thing happened again. They found little Roger, and they just gave him a good punch, you know, right in the kidneys. And... Poor little Roger wasn't really doing too well. Well, Roger had a brother. <laughs> Roger's brother happened to play right tackle for Long Beach State, it was 6'5", 260. And I'll never forget the day that Roger brought his brother to school. It was early in the morning, and Roger showed up, and this guy with all of his hoodlum friends was standing against one of the buildings, I'll never forget this as long as I live, and Roger walked up and said, Hi. And ha 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 and around the corner came Roger's brother. And Roger's brother proceeded to ruin that kid. He beat him something unbelievable. He was a bloody mess lying in a bush. I mean he really did it. He really did him in. You see Roger wasn't adequate in himself. But Roger had resources. <laughs> And Roger walked right up to that guy and said, hi. <laughs> see? He had no fear. As a Christian, you're standing firm when you're recognizing your resources. There is no reason that you're not adequate if you understand who God is, you see? And you understand that he's on your side. The gospel of peace means I'm at peace with God. He's on my team. I used to be a rebel. Now we're on the same team. Why would I be inadequate? What am I going to worry about? God is on my side, and if I run into the, to the hoods of Satan, I just, I'm adequate because I've got God. That's our standing firm. You know, it's like the grasshopper complex of Numbers 13 and 14. Remember the children of Israel, they went into the promised land, and they said, Oh, we'll never be able to handle it. There are giants in the land, and we're grasshoppers. And you know what happened? They all died in the desert. Terrible defeat. Why? Couldn't God handle those giants? Couldn't God handle? Sure he could. But you see, they didn't stand fast in the Lord. They stood fast in their human wisdom and it wouldn't hold them up. They tried to evaluate the scene militarily, humanly, and that was the wrong resource, you see. And, you know, we can't do that. When you get a problem in your life and a struggle in your life and trouble in your life, you've got to get off the confusion of the quicksand of your problem and you've got to get on the rock who is the character of God. Let me illustrate it from, from another angle. In 1 Samuel 21, there is a most interesting situation. David, great warrior, strong, mighty man who slew his 10,000. Great genius of mind who penned psalm after psalm. Great theologian who, better than anybody else in the Old Testament, spelled out the character of God. Brilliant musician, lyric poet. David, the mastermind. David, the great man of God. David who knew victory after victory. Watch David in this text. 1 Samuel 21.10. And David arose and fled that day for fear of Saul. Well, what was he afraid of? Was he afraid of Saul? Yes. Well, David, let's remind you of this, God is on your side, David. That's right. And God is stronger than Saul. You see that? But he didn't think about that. No, you see, all he thought about was Saul. Saul was after my hide. Like Martin Luther said to Erasmus, your thoughts about God are too human. You've got the wrong God, and it boils down to atheism, because the wrong God is not the God who is God, and then there's no God, and that's atheism. Some Christians are practical atheists because they deny God the right to solve their problem by fearing that he won't or can't. So David runs, and what a dumb place to run. He runs to Philistia, not exactly the most friendly place. And to Achish, the king of Gath. You remember somebody from Gath? Big man, Goliath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing one to another of him in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands? This is David. Boy, Achish, this guy is a powerful guy. And David heard the conversation and he laid up these words in his heart and was very much afraid of Achish. Now his fear of Saul has turned to a fear of Achish. He's on the run. He's a fugitive. So look what he does. Dignified, handsome, brilliant, courageous. David. Verse 13. He changed his behavior before them. And he pretended to be mad in their hands. And he made marks on the doors of the gates and let his spittle fall on his beard. You say, David, what is this? You know what he did? He pretended to be nuts. He started to slaughter like this and scratching the walls and pretending he was crazy, man. It doesn't look dignified for me to do that. Imagine if I was the king of Israel. Doing that. He's acting like a klutz, just like we do sometimes when we forget who God is. You know what he does? He finally gets panicky. And of course, Achish says, the last thing we need is another madman around here. Get rid of this guy. Have I need of madmen that you brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? This verse 15. Get rid of him. So David gets out of there. You know what he does? He runs, boy, like a shot. And he runs and hides in the cave of Adullam. And he sits there soaking in his dilemma and writes the 57th psalm. Turn to it. He writes the 57th psalm. And he's just kind of, oh, he's real painful here. He says, be merciful unto me, O God, be merciful unto me. I'm really in a bad deal here, God. I I can't go back to Philistia because uh, Anakish will get me, and I can't go back to Israel because Saul will get me. So he says, I only got one place to go. Yea, in the shadow of thy wings will I make my refuge. All of a sudden he came to his senses, didn't he? Quit drooling in his beard. Look down at verse 7. I love it. My heart is what? Fixed, O oh God. My heart is fixed. Where was his heart fixed? On God. God, i I I got a real big problem here. And I I can't seem to figure out the answer, but God, you are the God that I'll stand on. I'll jump off the quicksand of my confusion and get on the rock of your character. And so, God, I will sing and I'll give praise. Wake up, my glory. And what he means by that probably is shine, face. Come on, get a smile. Look happy, David. Grab your psaltery and your harp and sing your heart out. You say, well, did the circumstance change? No, no, he still had a problem, but he just began to reiterate to his own heart that he had a God who could solve the problem, that's all. It's a simple truth and we've thought it so many times. Here it is again. You know, I guess when I travel around the country and preach in meetings and conferences everywhere, the greatest concern that I have in my heart is that people would somewhere, somehow, someday understand who God is. The most important element of the Christian life, I believe with all my heart, is to know the nature and character of God so that you know what it means to be in Christ, in the Lord, and you can stand on that. Sometimes a Christian will say to me, Honey, aren't you worried about the children? When well, they'll be going somewhere, doing?" it. So. so why would I worry about the children? They belong to God. They're His children. He'll take care of His children. He's much more powerful than I am. Much more able. It's, It's like Habakkuk, you know, who says... I don't understand, God, why you would bring the Chaldeans to destroy the Israelites, the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation. You'd bring them in here to kill these. Why don't you just bring a revival to your people? Why, 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 why would you judge them like this? And, and he's just terribly distressed and distraught. And finally he says, Oh, God, I guess I just better remember who you are. And he says, Oh, God, you are eternal. Oh, God, you are self-existent. Oh, God, you are holy. God, you are almighty. God, you are a covenant-keeping. God, when he gets all done reciting who God is, he says, I got it, God that just shall live what? By faith, not by how they evaluate the circumstance. And so David did the same thing. He finally got back to the nature of God. You see, Psalm 50:21 tells us about ourselves just like Israel. God complained to Israel, and he said, "You thought that I was together such and one as thyself. You thought I was like you, didn't you? God said. You thought I was a victim of circumstance. You thought Satan could waylay my plans. You thought I was subject to the will of man. Well, you were wrong. Arthur Pink says, The God of this century no more resembles the sovereign of Holy Scripture than does the dim flickering of a candle resemble the glory of the midday sun. Pink went on to say, The God who is talked about in the average pulpit, spoken of in ordinary Sunday school, mentioned in so much of the religious literature of this day, and preached in most of the so-called Bible conferences is a figment of human imagination and invention of maudlin sentimentality. The heathen outside the pale of Christendom form gods of wood and stone, while the heathen inside Christendom manufacture a god out of their carnal minds. And in reality, they are but atheists, for there is no other possible alternative between an absolutely supreme god and no god, at all." End quote. When you know who God is, you can stand on that. And even though you don't understand the circumstances, you can stand on it and you can be strong. It says in Ephesians 6.10, be strong in the Lord and the power of what? His might. What a resource, beloved. What an incredible resource the Christian has. And when your troubles come, you get back onto the character of God. And you know, I tell people, they say, oh, I've got a problem here, I've got a problem here, what should I read, what should I read? And they expect me to say, well, here's a book on depression, or here's a book on uh, uh, psychological muggish-fruggish, and here's a book on this, and here's a book on self-evaluation, blah, blah, blah. And I say, here's a book on God, read this. This is the end of side one. Please turn your cassette over for the completion of Dr. MacArthur's message. Me. Find out who your resource is. That's really where to go. Stand on the rock. Man, it's good to know God. And it's good to know the God who is the God of the Bible in his fullness. Paul even said that I may know him just to continue to pursue that knowledge. Boy, I hope you study the truth of God, the character of God, the nature of God, because on that you can stand in the midst of any trial. Second thing, Philippians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul says the first thing is an adequate stand and the second thing is an adequate love. Notice the love that comes out of his heart, and he gives us a good example of his love. He is saying, look at me, what was I? I stood fast in the Lord against all kinds of bad circumstances because I had confidence in him. I sang in Philippi, right, when I was in jail. And he says, not only that, I have an adequate love. Look how I love. And you can see it in these first three verses. Watch. Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and longed for. The end of the verse. My dearly beloved. This guy's full of love. Now, who are these beloved people he's writing to? Well, he introduces two of them in verse 2. I beseech some of my beloved, Euodia and Syntyche, that they be of the same mind in the Lord. Now, he picks out two of his beloved, two women, Some have called them odious and syntachy, but that's not the way it's translated. Euodia means sweet fragrance and syntyche means pleasant and they were neither at this point. They were two cantankerous, troublesome, factioning women who were threatening to split the Philippian church. Now there's nothing worse than a church split. It's a tragedy. It is a heartache. It is a heartbreak. It goes on all the time not only is it a bad testimony, but it leaves such scars for everybody. It's a sad, sad thing. It breaks the heart of God when his people can't get along. But it happens. And I guess there are times when it needs to happen, when things go apostate and the truth has to walk away. But when good, honest Christians just fight each other and churches fractured. That's a heartache. And particularly in this case, Paul had poured his blood into this church. Paul had poured his heart into this church. Paul had paid some high prices to get those people to know Jesus Christ. And here are these two women messing up the church, causing all kinds of problems. It isn't always women. This is mostly men, but sometimes it's women. In this case, two women. Now, Paul could have said, somebody get those two women and grab them by the neck and send them over to the Presbyterian church. <laughs> or to the mission field. and Get them out of the country. But what does he say? Well, I, I wish he'd beseech them. See, he didn't even command. He-, he just said, could you just kind of plead with them a little... And I entreat you also, true yoke fellow. Now, true yoke fellow may be a reference to uh, somebody that he has in mind in general, but it's perhaps better to see this as a word you shouldn't translate. The Greek word is sythagous, and it does appear as a proper name in other places. And it could be that he's saying, Scythicus, who is a person in the congregation, would you please help those women? Now, these aren't just ordinary women. They labored with me in the gospel. They labored with Clement. They labored with other fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. These are important leadership-type women. And he says to Syzygus, would you see if you can get these gals together? Now, I'll tell you something about Love. Real love loves not just the lovely people that help you build the church, it loves the unlovely ones that seem to want to break it up. Real love loves not just the people that pat you on the back, but the people that stab you in the back. Real love loves not just the people who say the nice things about you, but real love loves the people who say the not nice things about you. Because real love is totally indiscriminate. The love of God shed abroad in our hearts is to be given to all men, is that right? And Paul loved, he loved Euodia and Syndicate as much as he loved Syntycheus, as much as he loved Barnabas, Silas, anybody else. Because, you see, he had the dimension of love that was divine, and he, like God, loves everybody. That's the way it ought to be for Christians. If God loved only the lovely, who'd get loved? Not me. Two quarrelsome women. He loved them. Adequate love. So vital. We've said so much about it in 1 Corinthians 13. I'm not going to belabor the point. But I'll tell you one thing, beloved. You'll never know meaning to life until you learn how to love. Real living is real loving. That's right. Only people who love really know life. The others are sour, bitter, bent, warped, and unhappy. Because they can't forget the things they hate. Better to just love everybody. You say, oh, but you'll get burned. Oh, yes, but you'll have such a good time getting burned, because you'll love in spite of it. So Paul said to the Colossians, put to death those members that are in earth. Off with anger, rage, malice, and slander. You've stripped off the old nature with its practices. Be clothed with compassion, kindliness, humility, gentleness, and good temper. Forbear and forgive each other. And above all, you must be loving, for love is the link of a perfect life. Real living is real loving. You know what it means. 1 Corinthians 13. We've learned it. So you've got to have an adequate stand in the Lord and an adequate love. And it's the love that comes from him, isn't it? His love shed abroad in us. Thirdly, adequate living demands an adequate joy. And here we get to this idea of joy and happiness. Verse 4. I love it. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. Well, it always seems so funny to me to hear that as a command. Did you ever try to do that? You go to somebody who's miserable and you say, did you know that the New Testament commands us 70 times to rejoice? See? So rejoice or else God will chasten you. Now how in the world? See, what he's offering here is not so much a command as it is a principle for living. You want to be happy? You want to know fulfillment? Rejoice rejoice you said but, oh you don't know my circumstances he said I'm not talking about circumstances rejoice in your circumstances always is that what it said what does it say rejoice in what the Lord does the Lord ever cause you to lose joy it shouldn't the Lord never changes you see the reason people get unhappy in life is because their happiness is dependent upon their life circumstance rather than upon their Lord you see that So Paul says, well, I'm a a supernatural man. I'm plugged into the Lord, and the Lord doesn't change, and the things about the Lord are always marvelous, and so I'm always happy because he's always the same, and the circumstances come and go, and that's the way it is. But they don't touch my joy. Adequate joy. Voltaire once exclaims this. He said, men are tormented, atoms in a bit of mud, devoured by death, a mockery of fate, He said, this world, this theater of pride and wrong swarms with sick fools who only talk of happiness. Poor guy. What a way to live. You know, there aren't too many happy people in our world. I mean, really happy people. You know why? Because you can't be happy in the world. You can't. You just can't be happy in the world. There's too many negative things. And you have momentary joy, you know. It's like the roller coaster. It's like, what do they call the thing at Magic Mountain? The revolution, you know. It's only fun when you're doing it. And then it's over and you get off. And you're back to reality. There's your same wife and your same dumb kids. And you go back to your same job. And the day at Magic Mountain is over. But that's because people tend to base their joy on the exhilaration of a circumstance. But the Christian's joy is predicated on the character of his Lord, which is unchanging, see? And what the Lord has done for us. And so our joy should be incessant. Rejoice in the Lord how often? Always. Boy, I tell you, I jump back on that rock a lot. And just say, boy, it's good to be... Lord with you and be happy in who you are because my circumstances are kind of painful Paul you know said I have unceasing tears for my people Israel he says I cease not to warn you Ephesians night and day with tears he cried a lot on the outside but boy on the inside his joy was constant you say I'd like to have that joy well it's easy really all you have to do is walk in the spirit because Romans 14 17 says the kingdom of God is not food and drink but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit it's a byproduct of walking in the spirit It's also connected to love. Jesus said, if you loved me, you would rejoice with me. Have you ever noticed how love is very happy? When people fall in love, they're almost stupidly happy. Well, in the divine sense, it's true. When your heart is just filled with love for God, there's an overflowing joy. Now that's living life. An adequate stand, you can stand on a rock no matter what circumstance. An adequate love, you can love anybody Because it's a divine capacity and an adequate joy, you can be happy through any circumstance because the God that you are joying in is above the circumstance. And in fact, he is using it for your good. Another principle he points out is an adequate gentleness. An adequate gentleness, verse 5. Look at that. It says in the King James, let your moderation be known, but the Greek word is gentleness. Let your gentleness be known unto all men. I like Philip's translation. He gets the idea of it in his paraphrase. He says, have a reputation for gentleness. Boy, that's good. You know, it bothers me sometimes that people think I'm kind of bombastic because I'm always yelling and hollering, you know. And I've got a lot of convictions. And I I know people think that I just sort of plow through life. You know, people flying in all directions. And it, one of the things that I really have to work on in my life is gentleness. I want a reputation for gentleness, but I don't know if I have that too well. And people always say to me, well, if they really knew you, they'd know that down there, there's gentleness somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that doesn't help the reputation part of it, see. You say, but Jesus cleansed the temple and so forth, and so forth. Yeah he did, and he' got to do that, and there's a right to have righteous indignation, but down, in there, down somewhere in your heart, you got to be gentle with people. In 2 Corinthians 10:1, Paul refers to the gentleness of Jesus Christ. I love that. Oh, he was so gentle. See how he treated sin? The only people he wasn't gentle with were false teachers, but with prostitutes and evil, vile sinners, he just was so gentle. With people who were troublemakers, he was so gentle. One of the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, gentleness. The servant of the Lord, says 2 Timothy 2.24, must not strive or fight, but be gentle. Listen to this one. This gets me. Unto all men. We can't just go through the world whacking away with our spiritual sword, chopping people to pieces. Gentleness. When Paul went to the Thessalonians in chapter Two of 1 Thessalonians, he repeats to them the way in which he came, the manner in which he approached them. He says, Our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile. In other words, we didn't come in with any ulterior motives. But we were, as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tries the hearts. We came to serve God and God alone. And neither at any time did we use flattering words, nor a cloak of covetousness. We didn't do it for money, or to con you into liking us. And we didn't seek glory from men. But listen to verse 7. First Thessalonians 2, 7. But we were gentle among you as a nursing mother cherishes her children. Paul says, the best picture I can give you of how we minister is that of a nursing mother, cherished. The word cherished means literally to warm with body heat something so tender and gentle as a mother pressing a little infant to her breast and feeding that infant. Paul says, that's the way we treated you pagan Thessalonians. Gentleness. Gentleness. The old song said, try a little tenderness. It's good. I know some Christians who are so zealous for the truth that they don't have any gentleness and what they wind up doing when they hit people is driving them further in the wrong direction instead of wooing them. And it isn't because the message offends, it's because there's a lack of gentleness. Gentle people are happy people because they're not trying to make war all the time. They're trying to be peacemakers. That's such a healthy thing. You want to really live life to its full? Take your adequate stand in the Lord. Learn to love everybody. Learn to have joy in the Lord and work hard to be gentle. And the responses will feed the fulfillment of life. There's a fifth thing in Philippians 4 that makes for adequate life. And I call it an adequate security. And I've discussed this before with you in other texts. Let me remind you of it. Verse 5. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known unto God. Now watch this. This is not talking about the second coming, as some have supposed. That's nothing to do with the passage. What he's saying is, Don't worry. The Lord is here. Now I know there are times when some of us think the Lord is way off somewhere. He says, Don't worry about things. The Lord is at hand. Don't you worry about anything. And I tell you, it's exciting. Years ago, under Stalin, a group of 30 Russians, peasants, met in secret for worship. Suddenly, into their meeting burst uh, Stalin's agents, some soldiers, and the leader ordered the name of every person there taken down. And when this was done, an old man spoke up and said, there's one name you don't have. And the soldier said, I have them all. And the peasant insisted he did not. And the soldier says, who is it then? The old peasant said, the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't have his name down. He was right, wasn't he? And I love that story of the man in the Second World War. Like it was on a ship that was sunk and he was an American. And he was picked up by the German ship and he was scared to death and they threw him in the hold of the ship and he was petrified of what was going to happen and he was up all night, great strain and finally he writes in this little note I began to commune with the Lord and at first I couldn't sleep and he reminded me of the 121st Psalm which says my help comes from the Lord which made heaven and earth he that keepeth thee will not slumber behold he shall neither slumber nor sleep and I said Lord there is no sense both of us staying awake I'll thank you for some sleep (laughs) the Lord is at hand what a great thing that is for a parent to know about his little children, isn't it? The Lord's there. No matter what happens in your life, He's there. And He knows, and He has the resource, and He has the power, and you don't want to fall into the trap of Erasmus and have a God that is too human, or you won't believe that and you'll short-circuit your joy. In fact, I look at trouble as great opportunities for God to display Himself. An adequate security. You say, boy, John, man, if I, could just, if I could just get this kind of stuff together in my life, how do I do it? How do I get that place where I really stand in the Lord have an adequate stand? Love everybody with an adequate love sense an adequate joy in my heart so that I can say rejoice always in everything because God never changes. How do I get that perspective where, where I can have gentleness and where I have security in the Lord? How can I have such confidence in the Lord? I'll tell you how. Look at verse 8. Finally, brother, whatever things are true, whatever things are honest, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, Whatever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things, those things which you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. What is he saying? He's saying you must set your mind on divine truth. Beloved, that's it. Simple, isn't it? When you set your mind on divine truth, which is true, honest, just, pure, lovely, good report. When you set your mind on apostolic writing that you have learned and received and heard, then you're going to find that you're going to get to know God. That's the key. Where do you set your mind? Where do you spend the hours of your day in the Word, Do you study it? Do you feed on it? Do you eat its words? Do you pass it on to someone else, thus making it more indelible in your own mind? You see, as you think on these things that reveal God, then you're able to stand on who He is, and you're able to love with His love and rejoice because of who He is, and to manifest His kind of gentleness and to stand secure in His presence. Because you know who He is. And if you can't do all this your God's too small and the only way you'll ever enlarge your God is to get into the revelation he's given of himself and find out who he is. That you can be adequate and your life can be everything that God could ever design. Well, let's pray. While your heads are bowed, let me just read you this. I cannot know why suddenly the storm should rage so fiercely round me in its wrath, but this I know, God watches all my path and I can trust. I may not draw aside the mystic veil that hides the unknown future from my sight, nor know if for me awaits the dark or light, but I can trust. I have no power to look across the tide to see while here the land beyond the river, but this I know, I am God's forever and I will trust. And that's really the essence of everything, to know God so well that you trust Him in everything and you know undiminished security, gentleness, joy, love and confidence. Thank you, our Father, for our fellowship this morning. It's so good, so good to be with your people. So good when brethren dwell together in unity. Thank you, God, for the unity you've given this church. Thank you for the love we share. Thank you for those precious visitors you sent us today. Help us to get to know them and share our joy with them this morning. Thank you that we can even have the privilege of coming again together tonight to feed on your truth. Help us to live life to the full. To be the happiest, most joyous, fulfilled people in the world. That the doctrine of God may be adorned before those who watch. And we'll give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the end of Dr. MacArthur's message. For more information concerning other Family Life speakers, please write to The Family Life Cassette of the Month Club, P.O. Box 1299, El Cajon, California. The spelling for El Cajon is capital E-L, capital C-A-J-O-N, and our zip code is 92022.